Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Melissa Nightingale is an internationally recognized expert on management and the modern workplace. She's the co-founder and partner at Raw Signal Group, and she has helped thousands of bosses worldwide show up with more confidence and confidence in how they lead. And I think confidence is probably a key word here. Melissa is a two-time international best-selling author of unmanageable leadership lessons from an impossible year. But I have to say, Melissa, I am favoring How Fucked Up Is Your Management, an uncomfortable conversation about modern leadership, because that is the best book title ever in the history of the world. Of course, you have your newsletter, which you publish every two weeks, the world's best newsletter, and you've had a massive career. You spent 20 years working in tech where you held executive roles that span marketing, customer success, community, and growth. You're living in Toronto, and our friend Margie Cater introduced us. So I'm so excited to have you on the show because this topic, actually, as much as Leave Your Mark is career advice, management has not been something we've really dedicated a whole episode to. So you are the girl for this. Awesome. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to meet you. Yay. So first of all, you are not born and raised Canadian. Where are you from originally? No, I grew up in Baltimore in the U.S. and I married a Canadian. Like I, I came to Canada late in life. So basically I moved to Canada in my 30s and had to sort of reinvent my entire career, which had prior to been in California. So I grew up in Baltimore, did my undergrad in D.C. Immediately, like basically two weeks before graduating, I finished school in D.C., and was on the next plane out to California. Like I knew I wanted to be in tech. My whole heart was sort of really interested in what was going on in San Francisco, what was going on in the Bay Area. And so basically two weeks post-graduation, I was on a plane going to California just at the height of the dot-com bubble bursting. Oh, convenient. If you imagine the timing, it was just at the height of pink slip parties. I mean, in terms of sort of like everything old is new again, there were no jobs to be found. There were tech layoffs everywhere. And I had shown up like, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, all excited, new grad, ready to go. I was like, is anybody going to hire me? Because I'm out here and I have to pay rent. <laughs> anybody? And that was my start in tech. Wait, so what was your first job? So in undergrad, I studied PR and then I minored in computer information systems. So I learned how to code. And in the 90s, this was like a really weird mix. Right? It was a very strange time to say, like, I want to do both 
the PR side of things, but I also really like the tech side of things. And how do you marry those two concepts together? And at the time, most folks were like, you don't. (laughs) You definitely don't. You don't. In my heart, I was like, they need each other, right? Because people are building amazing things with the technology, but nobody wants to use it because nobody can talk about why it matters or why it's exciting or why it's important. There's like somebody needs to live in the middle of these two worlds. And I was like, I live in the middle of these two worlds. And there were no marketing jobs. Like in terms of what got laid off first in the first dot-com bust, all of the PR and marketing jobs were basically gone overnight, but they were still hiring people to build software. And I was like, I know how to build software. So I made two resumes. Smart. One was my tech resume, which was like all my tech skills and all of the work that I had done in terms of programming. And the other resume was my PR resume, which is like all the work I had done on marketing PR comms. Sent out my PR resume and got crickets, just nothing coming back. Sent out my tech resume and they were like, we're still hiring for that. Wow. It's like legitimately an A-B test. Yeah. And my first job was coding in a dark room. Like the first three years of my career were spent waiting out a bad economy and coding in a dark room for seven hours a day. That sounds riveting. Like I literally would rather die, I think, than do that. But I love that you did it. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm ready for the next thing. But it, you know, it wasn't a bad way to sort of wait it out. In 2004, money started flowing back into tech. There were more jobs again. So you had this amazing like corporate life. What inspired you to start Raw Signal? And where did you get that name? So in terms of what inspired Raw Signal, what inspired us sort of when we were first getting going, uh, my husband is my co-founder. And our youngest child is like the world's worst sleeper. So when she was a baby, she was like, I'm not doing it. I'm just not sleeping. We used to call her the little raver. She would be up until like three o'clock in the morning, like ready to party. And so we were sleep deprived, like massively, massively sleep deprived and then got a sleep trainer. And once we got a sleep trainer in within three days, that child was sleeping through the night. We're like, come on. Like it always feels unfair, but you're like so grateful. You're like, it's fine. It's fine. So our kids started sleeping through the night. And we started talking about all the stuff in tech and like management and leadership and all the stuff in growing organizations that we wish someone had told us along the way. And I don't know why that's what we were doing, but like I was at the end of my mat leave and I was getting ready to go back to work, just sort of trying to like prime those muscles again of what it was like to lead and having to step back into an executive role after, you know, in Canada, like it's an extended leave, right? So I was gone for eight months and feeling wow. like I just wanted to get my feet back under me on talking about work topics. Like, man, like people should capture some of this stuff. And so we started a blog basically in our living room to say, like, we should start writing about the stuff that was hard to learn that we wish someone had told us. And that blog went from being like a tiny little project to the top blog on Medium on management and leadership topics basically within the first three months. Wow. And then that blog turned into How Fucked Up Is Your Management? So a lot of the original posts from HFUIYM were originally on that blog. And then from there, like I went back to my startup job and I was like, man, this is good, but I'm still like my main hustle was like startup exec. And then my side hustle was writing about it at night and then hearing from all of these people who are like, this is really hard. And it's not just hard in tech. It's not just hard in startup. This is hard everywhere. And so at some point we're like, the this is hard everywhere was like a very loud sign for us that something, something needed to shift, right? That like there were a lot of people out there who are really struggling with how do you lead teams? How do you give feedback when it's hard? How do you align people around a set of objectives? Like, there's just a bunch of stuff there that nobody is taught how to do. And especially in orgs where stuff is changing really frequently, we're not taught how to manage through things when it's changing. We're actually often taught how to manage through constant. And so that was sort of how we got started on Raw Signal Group. And in terms of the name, it's a funny story. So my husband is Canadian and I'm American. And we we're trying to figure out the name for the company. We came up with terrible, 
it's sort of embarrassing to say to somebody who spent a bunch of time in brand, but we spent so much time on the name and came up with really awful, awful names like <laughs> Nightingale and Nightingale Industries, like Nightingale and Court. Like we just went through like very, very bad names. And at some point I was like, okay, we have to figure this out, right? And he's like, well, in Canada, everything has to work in English and in French. And he's like, and it'd be cool. We could use the French word for Nightingale, but it's actually the name of a ski company. So we can't use it. And I was like, well, what is it? Just so I know. And he said, it's Rossignol, which is like the famous like ski company, right? Oh, yeah. And I wrote down on a piece of paper. I was like, well, it doesn't matter because I can't say that anyway. And when you say it, I hear this. And I wrote down raw signal. And he was like, that's it. <laughs> oh, my. I'm so glad I asked because that's a great story. That's amazing. The company name is an American mishearing a Canadian say the French word for Nightingale. That's really funny. It's really, really funny. So <laughs> management is so fucked up, Melissa. It is, Alisa. First of all, what is the biggest mistake you see consistently in leadership? The one that we see the most often is like, Everybody wants it to be like bosses are these terrible, awful caricatures of humans. And the biggest mistake we see bosses make time and time again is that at the moment of promotion, they want to pretend nothing's different. They want to pretend that nothing's changed. And so it actually doesn't come from this like cackling, evil, like caricature, awful place. It comes from a really lovely place of like, I'm still cool, right? Like we used to go for lunch. We could still go for lunch. I don't need to like tell you how you're doing with your work. We could just like collaborate, but like in a different way. And my business card will be different, but still collaborate. Like, I think a lot of folks, the mistake that we make is not being sort of like just overly obnoxious with the title. It's not acknowledging the title change at all or the role change at all. And the role comes with a bunch of things that we need you to do and take seriously in that moment. And in the, the push to sort of dispel the awkwardness and the discomfort, we have a lot of bosses who fail to step into what the role actually requires because they're so busy trying to make their teams really comfortable and also trying to make themselves really comfortable with the idea that nothing's different. So there's this power dynamic that's super uncomfortable, right? But then there's also this kind of push and pull between you're like a real boss and you're managing or you're this servant leader, right? Yep. What's the right balance between managing and also being there for your team? If we just like pull it all the way down to like at the core, at the essence of like what you're getting paid to do when somebody says, can you manage this team? The thing that they're asking you to do is not, can you like wield power over this team? And they're actually not asking you to go to lunch with everybody. They're asking you to take this team of people, organize their work and specifically organize their work against a set of things that the organization cares about. And so when we look at bosses, like one of the things that leaders get a little bit confused about, like you can lose the plot pretty quickly in terms of like, what am I getting paid to do? And how do I know whether it's going well? <laughs> is it a good sign if my team likes me? Is it a bad sign if my team doesn't like me? What do I do about the fact that like the more senior I get in an organization as a woman in an organization, the less likely my team is to find me likable in the first place? Like, what do I, what do, I do with that? And I think for a lot of folks, the core work is in the scorecard. It's like, how do you know if it's going well? Well, if we're there in our job is to make our team more effective, like effective at what? And so how do we sort of get out of our own way and figure out like, what is the reason this team's getting paid? And sometimes you have to actually ask the question, what is my team getting paid to do? Why are they all here? I love that they're here. We're all having a good time, but like, what is the business buying for the, or like even in a nonprofit context, right? Like 
you're there for a set of programs, a set of reasons. What are those reasons? It's interesting because while you were speaking, you made me think of your other book, Unmanageable Leadership Lessons from an Impossible Year. And those lessons from an impossible year made every leader into part parent, part camp counselor, part therapist. So again, we're straddling the job Mm -hmm. versus the empathy and care that now employees kind of expect. Yep. So Unmanageable was written from the timeframe of the first lockdowns in March of 2020 to the anniversary of those lockdowns in March of 2021. Like that's the year, that's the impossible year that we're describing. Some bosses, that was their very first kick at management. I cannot imagine a harder time to be trying to learn it on the job than that year. Me either. And for a lot of bosses, like they had support of the form, like do the best you can. But I think in a moment where do the best you can is you sort of managing and leading that team, but on top of your people having needs that are really outside what is an expected sort of set of needs in terms of, you described it, right? It was like, you've got kids home, questionable sort of like arrangements in terms of what virtual schooling was available, even at that time, like a lot of it wasn't. And so we had managers who were really forced to sort of step in and say like, what does my team need? How many of those things can I provide? And it is not even remotely surprising to me that so many folks came out of that year and gave it back. Basically said like, I had my kick at managing a team and I would like to go back to individual work. Wow. Okay. But now we're thankfully past all that, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the residual effects of that relationship dynamic are still very much there. And I do feel that there's a lot of focus on, of course, work-life balance and mental health and all of those things, which sometimes does get in the way of efficiency and productivity, right? Because people are very protective over their burnout. People want to make sure they're prioritizing themselves while at the same time, that can sometimes be in conflict with the demands of a company. So how do managers navigate that? I mean, I think the piece that a lot of managers benefit from is just that clarity on what's the team meant to be doing gives us sort of a a bunch of understanding of which things are the most important. And if I ask my boss, like, what are the things we're getting measured on? What are the really big objectives for the organization? The more you can access those things, the more you can figure out which things to put down. And in terms of sort of work-life balance, I'd argue that effective management is a really key component in work-life balance. Because if I don't have a a boss backstopping it, I can work 24 hours a day and still feel like I'm failing, right? And Mm -hmm. if you've got an organization where somebody can work basically without sleeping and still not get to the end of it, then I would argue that you've got an organization that doesn't understand strategic focus or prioritization. And that's the boss's job. That's what we ask managers to do, right? When we talk about people managing the workload, that's what we're looking for. First 90 days for a manager. Tell me the difference between a manager who has been promoted within in the first 90 days Mm -hmm. and a manager who is newly hired. If there's a difference, because I think there is, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Ooh, I love this question. And I would argue there's another layer, which is like first 90 days by industry in terms of expectations, right? But so first 90 days, if you're internal, like you already know how to make coffee, you are right, like especially if you're in an office, you already know where the bathrooms are. Like you got a lot of the core pieces covered. The first 90 days, if you're an internal promotion, is to figure out like what the expectation is for your new role whatever storytelling has happened about your success 
the amazing potential that you have in this role. You've got a whole bunch of people who may have been really enthusiastic and behind the scenes advocating for this promotion. Great. Go figure out what those people are really enthusiastic about seeing in terms of the results of that promotion, right? Because they may have sort of hopes, dreams, wishes, and aspirations for you being in this role. But if you haven't asked them or haven't talked to them about it, you're going to walk directly into a brick wall and you get to the end of those 90 days if they have expectations of things they want to see and you aren't managing to that. So that's like internal. In an external capacity, a lot of it is coming in and listening, right? A lot of it is coming in and really understanding the context in which you're operating, which is really hard. But I think for many folks coming in in a management role, like one of two mistakes, either I'm only listening to my peers and my own boss about what's going on and I totally miss listening to the team or I listen to the team at the exclusion of listening to my peers in management or my own boss. And both are a mistake. They're a mistake for different reasons, but like they're both a mistake. You really need to get a full picture. And the only way you're going to get that full picture is full open ear listening to the entire organization about like, what are big wins? What's the biggest win this team put up in the last year? Where are things where you feel like there's interdepartmental pieces that are slowing us down? And that is a phenomenal question to ask for your actual direct reports. Like your team often knows when they're like, you know, we just, we hate working with the finance team. Okay, well, good. In the first 90 days, like go unfuck that. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you need to make it work. Okay. I love that. Wait, I want to go back to the internal promotion, 90 days person. How does the internal newly promoted person navigate the dynamics of their former peers that they now oversee? The first piece we talked about already, which is like the idea of pretending it doesn't exist is like, all right, that's not going to work because like they know and you know, and we can't all just walk around with this giant elephant in the room. All like we just, I mean, we can, but like most people who've been at this for more than two minutes are like, it doesn't work. They are aware and we are aware. And so a better approach and sort of a more constructive approach is just sit down and have a conversation and say like, we're in a different spot than we were. And I loved our working relationship before. And I want to like talk about what we want our relationship to be moving forward and what that working dynamic is. Here are some things I know about myself in terms of my management style or my emerging management style if we haven't done it before. But saying some of the like foundational pieces of just the expectations of what that change means, it means we're going to be doing one-on-ones together. It means we're going to be having those one-on-ones weekly to start. We may shift to bi-weekly at some point or the reverse, right? But like having some of those structural conversations remove some of the awkwardness and it allows us to step into the role where we are managing that person versus sort of living in this like limbo where we pretend that nothing's different. Yeah. It's a little bit of, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but it almost sounds to me like survivor's guilt in a weird way. It's like, you feel guilty that you were the one chosen. Yeah. And especially where you like, you're managing individual contributors, then you know that they're better at the craft than you are. Right. Like maybe you got tapped for promotion for reasons totally outside of your ability to like do the thing that your team is really good at. And so sometimes you have this like awkward moment of like, oh, I'm now managing someone who's been doing it for 30 years, who is way more of a domain expert on this area of the industry or this sort of area of the craft. What right do I have in order to like step into to managing that team? And who am I? Like, why didn't that person get promoted? And so I think there's a lot of that and often gets bundled in imposter syndrome of like, I'm, I'm now managing a team, but I'm like not necessarily the smartest person on the team, to which I would say, great, great. Like if your scorecard is that you're supposed to be helping this team of people do amazing things within the organization, it's so helpful that they're clever. 
it would be a much harder job for you if they weren't clever, right? Then we have like way different management challenges, but like what a beautiful starting point to like have esteem for the people on your team, to respect their craft, to feel like the things that they're skilled at are really different than the things that you are skilled at. But I think like a lot of folks sort of start with the first pass at the awkwardness, which is like, I have no right to be here. Like, well, actually the thing we're asking you to do is really different than the thing we asked them to do. Right. So on the subject of overseeing someone who maybe has expertise for a long time in an area, should the manager try to level up in that area to school themselves? Or should they say, you know what, this person is the expert on this. I'm going to focus on other areas and be very happy that this person is the expert on that. So I think there's like what ought to happen and what often happens. Okay, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) What often happens is the like, I'm going to cram like it's a sort of college exam and I'm going to spend 13 hours reading a book or watching a YouTube series to try and sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those conversations, if you've ever had a boss where like, you're like, this is this is my thing. This is my thing and has been like my thing inside and out for maybe a decade, maybe several decades, and had somebody try and cram on a weekend to go talk to you about it as though your peers, you're like, we do not bring the same level of expertise to this conversation. And like you're just your fraud is showing right now. So that's what often happens. What ought to happen in that moment is the okay, bear with me. It's like the decoupling of mentorship versus coaching. So In a context where you're managing someone where you don't know what the fuck they do all day, like where you know that they've got expertise, you know it's valued by the organization, you're not worried about the work not happening. But like when you actually go to do what they do, you're like, I don't know, like I'm managing designers and I draw stick figures. It's like a like I had that, right? I was a marketing executive and I do draw stick figures. Like I'm not a designer by any stretch, but you have to manage the team of people that you've got. And if I pretended, if I had shown up and been like, I like learned how to draw a stick figure with an arm. Like I'm awesome at that. They'd be like, no, get out of here. Like none of this makes any sense. But I think in terms of sort of the way to get great at it, it's to realize that your value in that moment is to be a thought partner, a sounding board to provide direction, to provide clarity on what the organization is trying to get done. There are so many ways to add value as a boss in that moment. The way that you're going to fall on your face is to pretend that you can add value by teaching them their craft. You can't. So once you decouple it and you're like, okay, my job is to do this piece over here. My job is to do the part that like absolutely makes sense in terms of like the management pieces that I can do and the craft pieces. We're going to have an out loud conversation about your need to get better at your craft and my inability to be that person for you. And it is this like massive moment of relief for bosses when you're like, if you are not good at design, the answer is actually not cram all night and be great at design. It's go find creative directors who can mentor that person, either like internal to your organization. Often our bosses have really good professional networks, external to your organization. But like your job is to be an advocate for that person finding that mentorship. Your job is not to provide it. Interesting. I love that. Setting expectations and giving direction in a way that is clear. Mm -hmm. What is the best way to do that? And where do managers fail? Ooh, I think if you don't have your own clarity, you can't give it to anybody else is a way that managers fail. And so often, like, if I think I understand what I'm running toward, but I don't have like a solid piece and my team starts asking questions about it, especially coming from PR, like you can answer any question. 
because you're trained to answer any question, but that's different than being able to answer it fully enough for a team of professionals to rally behind it, to understand what success looks like. And so I think the piece I'd say for most bosses is pause and just do that gut check. Do you actually really understand what you're asking the team to do? And if they ask you three questions about it, do you feel defensive or do you feel excited? And if you feel defensive, you have some work to do in terms of just getting a little bit more information, a little bit more investigation from the rest of the organization about either what the objectives are or what the timeline is or what the other departments need. If you're like in an internal capacity, there are just elements there where if you feel excited, you can then get a team of people excited about it. But if you feel like you're going to go to your team and they're going to ask you something and you're going to wince, we're not in a good spot. When it comes to giving direction or assigning projects to team members and the truth of the matter is that like the drop dead deadline, there is a designated date, but like nothing's launching, right? Nothing's going to really happen if it doesn't get done by that date. Yeah, yeah. I've seen in recent history, direct reports just kind of like not delivering when you asked for it to be delivered. And then there's always like an excuse and like the goalpost keeps moving and you know, there's not really a deadline and they know there's not really a deadline, but you asked for it on a certain day. How do you manage that? I really like a system that I learned early agency, but didn't have a name for it. And I, I gave it a name, but I, if somebody knows what it is actually called, somebody should email me and tell me because I've been calling it this, but I actually don't know what it's called. Early in my career managing agencies, I was managing 12 agencies, fully global, and they would send me back work. And like, sometimes I'd get the work on time. Sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I get the work and like the final product was way far from what I actually expected it to be. And so I developed a system and said like, look, we're going to go with 10, 60, 90 right? At 10%, we're really just talking about an idea. We're just like, do we have like locked eyes on what the core thing is that we're trying to get done? If we do, you all should go run to get to the 60%. And then we're going to check in again at the 60%. And the 60% mark, there may be some structural pieces, but if it's like fundamental foundational, we missed something at the 10%. And then like, assuming we're good, assuming like everything checks out and like directionally we're okay, we should go run to the 90 and the 90 should always be a yes. If at the 90, we're not ready to ship, then something's gone wrong again. And like, we got to figure that out and troubleshoot it. 10, 60, 90 gave me checkpoints along the way. It gave my folks autonomy to go do the creative work, go do the exploration, go do a process that makes sense to you. But we should never be in a spot where like, we've got a deadline and the thing is due and you're at the start line. And I think we should be at the fit. Like, that's, we're not in a good spot there. That's such amazing advice. So glad I asked that question. In an interview, you said there's not nearly as much advice on the questions managers should be asking themselves during critical moments of reflection. What are some of those questions? Oh, so many managers are like, we, we're so busy, like capital B busy, and we don't have any time to like stop and pause. And so much of that stop and pause is, what does this team need from me? Is like a really powerful question. And what does this team need from me right now? Sometimes like we've got managers who get field promoted, right? Like the boss above them leaves. They're thrust into a management position where they're stepping into it and they're stepping into it very quickly for a team that is otherwise like dealing with a bunch of change. And then they get through that change. They actually like often do a really good job getting things stabilized, but they forget to look around and realize that things have stabilized and that their team needs an entirely different boss than they did six months ago where things were, were rockier. Now we need a boss who's sort of looking 
at the horizon and figuring out what's sort of the next big step, what are the next big projects that we need to be focused on. And so a lot of leaders get into this spot where they manage from comfort. And sometimes managing from comfort is exactly what we need. But often in organizations where the context is changing, the team is changing, the organization is changing, just pick it up the head and being like, okay, what are the signs that I'm getting in terms of like how I need to show up in the role right now? And then the other one that's really important is like internally, your own style of showing up, like who do you want to be as a boss? We talk to leaders all the time about great boss stories, right? Of like the really like transformative, amazing management stories that they've got in their own careers. And then the really destructive ones. And there's not so much space between the ones that are really amazing and transformative and the ones that are really catastrophic. And so for leaders, it's really useful to say like, am I taking care of the things that I need to take care of to be able to show up and be somebody's amazing boss story? Or have I stopped taking care of those things? And am I really likely to be the person who bites somebody's head off in a meeting and have that person carry that with them for the rest of their career? Yeah. So people are not asking themselves these questions. No. That's for sure. I mean, just this week, I mentor in the Leave Your Mark community and the stories people are sharing, I just don't understand how people get away with that type of management in 2023. How? I mean, I think like sometimes it's because they learned it from their own boss. We certainly encounter leaders who say some variation of, I don't care how you get it done, just that you get it done. Still, in 2023, there are bosses around who will say that. And I think if you say that to a boss who hasn't been at it very long or somebody who has been at it for a long time and has a specific style, you've just given me like a blank check on being an asshole. Right? If you say to me, I don't care how you get it done, I care that you get it done. And I have a a tendency toward being a jerk to people. Watch how quick. Yeah, such a good point. I'm sorry for that person in the community. Like, it's shitty. I wish I could tell you that there was just one person. Oh, no. But this is it. This is why this is my work. Yeah. We know so much more about how teams thrive. We know so much more about how people thrive in roles and organizations. And we still encounter really horrific stories about what's going on at work. And you're like, I guarantee that person showed up to work that day wanting to do a good job. Or those people showed up to work that day wanting to do a good job. Like, why tear that person down? It's not necessary. I mean, you're absolutely right. But even with your work and for everyone listening, Melissa and her husband do these amazing management training courses. How long is the course for, Melissa? Uh, BPX is a six-week course delivered online. And then we have live sessions once a week. You have to hope that learning and development or the CEO of the company secures a course like that for their team. Because otherwise, people need to be self-reflective enough to understand like, hey, maybe I could be better at this. and Maybe I should learn how to be better. Usually the really bad ones, though, think they're perfectly fine. Sometimes we got folks who really do feel like they're like, I'm on top of it. I'm doing a great job. But like, if you ask some of the reflective questions, like, well, how do you know? And they're like, oh, I like hit my numbers. I'm like, okay, what's turnover like on your team? Oh, well, don't look too closely at that. Okay. All right. Well, if it's working for you, it's working for you. Like, don't let me push you off of it. But I think a lot of folks, it's about like, how are we keeping score? And if the only way we're keeping score is everyone on my team hits quota every quarter and they cry in the bathroom. Okay. Well said. Management, half your team is in the office, half your team is remote. That's fun. How do you do it? So fun. So fun. I mean, like, there's also the flavor of it. Like half your team is in the office, half your team is remote. And then like, some portion of that remote team 
you actually don't see at all because they're asleep while you're awake and you're asleep while they're awake. <laughs> we get these weird configurations of people who are like, I'm managing a team, but we like high five when the sun comes up. I'm like, oh, that's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, the, the core of it is like, we have folks who are like, it's really hard to manage remote. Like it is like the fundamentals are the same in terms of you need to have some of the same core skills that make you great as a manager when you can see people also make you great as a manager when they're remote. But when you go remote, you lose a bunch of context. You can't walk by somebody's desk. You can't sort of have that hallway conversation. And so you need to get more creative about how are you backfilling that? How are you understanding how people on your team are doing? How are you building those opportunities for culture? Because like a lot of it we used to get for free, right? When we were all physically together, that was easier. And the one that's really hard is in a somewhat remote and somewhat in-person context, Often I remember to have the conversation to tell my direct report something when I see them and then I forget to tell the remote people. <laughs> and so they're very angry because they're like, I have an imbalanced access to information, right? Like you work in the California office, you have all the context and I work in Singapore and like your literal feeling is like nobody ever tells me anything. And so bosses have this extra obligation to not only remember to tell the team, but remember to tell the whole team about the thing. Yes, or else you feel like the stepchild. Yes, and rightly. And then you end up in these like weird pockets where folks who are outside of the organization all then talk to each other about how grumpy they are, said from personal experience, right? And then like as a boss, you end up sort of joining a meeting and half the remote people are on the call early to tell you like, you forgot to tell us about the thing and we're all very angry about that. No good. No good. Management style, introvert versus extrovert in a world where we reward loud. If you're someone who is not owning the room, not the center of attention, but wants to equally command the respect of peers, direct reports, management, what's the best way to flex that image in a way so that you are as visible? Elise, you'll love this. I worked for a lady CEO in tech for a long time. And she was one of the very few women in very senior executive leadership positions in tech. And one of the things that I took from that management relationship was that she never said a single word she didn't mean. Not an um, not a but, not a like, but also never said yes in a conversation to a thing just to be polite. So if somebody asked a question and said, what do you think of the roadmap? What do you think of these technical decisions? She would never say like, looks good or interesting or even hmm. She was the presence and command of quiet. I have never seen anybody in my life. And like, you can hear it in my voice. Like it still has profound impact. And this is like decades later, right? But this was somebody where they took the quiet and they turned it into like their thing, right? Like it was, it was so powerful. And we do, we think about all of these examples of loud, boisterous, extroverted, chest thumpy tech CEOs. And she was like, I'm not that. I'm not going to be that. So how do I take the thing that I am and make that my thing? Yeah, still sticks with me to this day that like, just because you're in the meeting doesn't mean you need to be the loudest voice in the meeting. You're giving me very much Miranda Poosley vibes when you're telling that story, right? Because she, <laughs> she did the same thing, like that complete and utter composure. And I would say hardcore discipline to control your words. Like, I wish I had some of that discipline. Like, I'm just like a fountain of words. But we're communicators, so it's like that goes with the territory. But that is very impressive. 
but also can come off as very cold. Yep, it can. <laughs> like, sure did. <laughs> it, well, it can, right? Like, it's hard. And the seniority likability thing is you're just, you're so screwed. Like, it's very, very hard to be that senior and like have everybody feel warm. Like, it's just, and it's unfair. We don't do that to everybody in business. We really don't. I really agree. Wait, I'm pulling up right now because this was such a great tweet and I want to ask you about it. I don't know if you know Benisha. Mm-mm. She tweeted yesterday and I freaking quote tweeted the shit out of this. And I was like, oh my God, this is so true. She said, folks, I hate to say this, but vulnerability at work is a trap for everyone that's not a man in a position of power. Don't do it. I saw that tweet. <laughs> you did? That's so funny. I did. They just put it in my algorithm. So female management versus male management and the topic of vulnerability. What is your position? I have had to learn and unlearn, but I will say, especially from a communications perspective, there are words that I will never say in a leadership context and have had to teach myself and to do deliberate work to bring back in. So things like my co-founder will write an email and he'll put like, you know, I'm worried about, or I'm concerned about this. And I'm like, oh my God, never be worried. And he's like, six and a half feet tall, white dude, like looks the way that you imagine a tech exec might look. And he's like, what are you talking about? Why is that a problem? And I'm like, so much of getting respect and, you know, just really feeling like I I had my seat at the table in tech management and tech leadership was like, I would never say I'm worried. I would never say I'm concerned. Like, oh my God, God forbid they call me emotional. Oh, I can't say those words. And in terms of unlearning, had to realize that that's actually about somebody else's broken and internalized ideas about like who is a leader, who can be at that table, what they need to sound like, and had to sort of retrain my brain to say like, wait a second, those are the things that we're actually trying to move past. And if we're trying to move past the idea that leaders have to conform to a very rigid set of expectations, we think we need more people at the table. And the way that we're going to do that is to broaden the definition of what it looks like to sit at that table then we need to throw away some of these ideas and like start with ourselves in terms of where are you carrying baggage for people whose voices do not matter, right? Like whose voice is that, that you can't be worried or you can't be concerned as an executive? Yes. But, you know, it's interesting. I'll throw out a counterpoint. Inherently, there's judgment, right? So I think for the people that have your back, absolutely. They're there. They're like, oh my God, you're worried. How can I help? But for the people that don't have the best intentions and don't have your progression at heart or care about that, then there's something more devious in the background going on that they're like thriving on the fact that you are worried. And that's just the reality of sometimes working with not great people. Yes. Like I was a person where ambition was a thing that I was called from basically day one. And even in my very first job, I didn't know why that was a bad thing. I was like, Yes. Yes. <laughs> I have drive. Okay. And I think the people who want to use it as a weapon are going to figure out a way to take things that are, I don't know, core to who you are and how you show up. And they're going to try and figure out a way to make that a thing that sort of takes you down a peg. And I think the challenge is figuring out, okay, there are people for whom ambition is a knock. There are people for whom being worried or concerned about the business is a knock. But then just like figure out what's the flip side of that. And the flip side of that is, if I'm worried or concerned, it's because I care and because I want the thing to succeed. And so how do I just like spend some time in 
I have a concern here, right? We're not going to hit our numbers or I have a concern here. This project is not going to hit its timeline. Like you do want a leader in that moment who isn't sort of off on the weekend, just like, being like, okay, whatever. It's not going to like, it's not going to succeed. Like not my problem. You want someone who's in it. And so I think it's how do we broaden the definitions of some of these things to include worry and concern and ambition as things that actually we often see in the workforce and are often really good predictors of success for people in management and leadership roles. What's the best way for management to build trust with a new team? There are like a couple of pieces and one of them is really hard to say, but proximity builds trust. And that's a very hard thing to say out loud when so many teams are working remote. And so what I'd say is like, if you're listening to this and you're a remote leader and you're like a little bit, fuck you, like proximity builds trust, like that's hard to do. Proximity can be lots of things, right? We can find lots of ways to spend time together, but we're still human. We are like social little monkeys, right? Like we still have expectations of being able to see each other, being able to like shoot the shit, being able to have casual conversation. And so I think a lot of where leaders struggle right now is the workforce has gotten stripped to the meeting you're in, the like project you're on, the handoff that you're in the middle of. But a lot of the pieces that make work go, we've sort of peeled away. And what's interesting is that in my work, like what we see is leaders saying like, there's so much process. Why is there so much process? There's just like, there's too many checkpoints. There's like way too much process. What's going on? And when you dig in, it's like, because you stripped away all of the human to human connection. And when the human to human connection is gone, I don't trust that you're going to send me the thing that you say you're going to send me because I don't even know you. I've never met you. Like you may be working in some far off part of the org and we don't have a relationship. And when we don't have a working relationship, what do I do? How do I ensure that I get the thing? We build a shit ton of process into organizations. And so I think a lot of orgs will hear it and be like, okay, like human to human connection, like, okay, fine. But in terms of actually getting orgs to go fast, like orgs ship on the backs of relationships, right? Like if we have a good working relationship, then I know that that point of handoff is going to be really clean. I know that I'm going to get the thing at the right timeline. I know that I'm going to be able to actually get my team to do the piece that they're supposed to do. And that feels really good, but it's an investment. And sometimes orgs are going to have to buy plane tickets. Hmm. Well said. Uh, Melissa, this is such great conversation and chock full of so much information. Last question, always the same. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? What is the headline for Melissa Nightingale? I really want to build better bosses and not a few. Fundamentally, the work that we do is based on this very, very easy thesis, which is work sucks for a lot of people. And when you ask them why work sucks, they point to their boss. And not only are those people working in the organizations having a hard time, but when you ask the boss, they're like, I'm also having a hard time. And when you ask their bosses, they're also having a hard time. And so if you can get bosses more of the skills that they need in order to be successful, it not only makes that boss's situation better, it has like profound impact for every single person working under them and a lot of the people working above them. You can change industries if you can get the skills in the hands of bosses to make them sort of feel more confident and more confident in the work that they're doing. I totally agree. I feel like this is the kind of episode that people are going to like listen to multiple times because there's such good information in it. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. I loved everything we spoke about. And yeah, just don't ever retire because... You have, you have a lot of work to do. Elise, I feel that way, right? Like, I feel like we got to keep going. 
Thank you so much. This was so fun. I loved your questions. I feel like they were such great questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.